Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the eastern border. I feel much better than I did last time. I don't even know. After I recorded, I uh, had a sudden issue with my heart or something. Uh, my nose just started bleeding and I felt terribly ill. And I, well, uh, I had to check up on the doctor next day. It wasn't that fun. But yeah, today, well, there aren't that much news to cover. So I wanted to go back and do a bit more philosophical take on things. But first, I do have to get the news out of the way first, because things that are there are uh, quite important. Lviv, city in western Ukraine, was struck by missiles in the, ninth, uh, in the night of July the 6th. According to the city's mayor, Andriy Sadovy, this was one of the largest attacks on civilian infrastructure in Ukraine since the start of the full-scale Russian invasion. It was struck by Kaliber cruise missiles, which were launched around 1 a.m. local time. Their defense was able to take down seven out of the ten missiles that were launched, but uh, five people have been killed as a result of the strike, and another 37 have been injured. According to the mayor, missile remnants destroyed one apartment building and damaged 35 others. The head of Lviv's wartime administration says a missile directly struck the building that's, struck the building that's been destroyed. He named three women two of them aged 62 and 60, and a man who was killed as a result. 60 apartments have been destroyed by the projectiles, and displaced residents will be temporarily housed at a local hotel and in modular housing. The city has allocated 100 million grivnas, or about $2.7 million, for rebuilding the destroyed and damaged housing. And, well, sadly at least 10 air raid shelters turned out to have been closed during the strike. A two-day mourning period has been announced in Lviv. Lviv is kind of considered the safest place out there. Meanwhile, in the Russian Republic of Tatarstan, a large-scale production of Shahid drones has been launched. Russian opposition publications Project and Razvorot write about it. This is taking place in the Alabuga Special Economic Zone, and now, according to the journalists, production is beginning to move away from the usual assembly of drones from parts sent from Iran. Over the next year, the management of Alabuga plans to transfer the production of some parts to the Russian Federation and then to automate production. As a result, the efficiency of the assembly should be dozens of times higher than in Iran. So the sources claim. However, then, corruption is also going to play all sorts of nastiness. There are plans to expand the area of production facilities which will increase from the current 40,000 square meters to over 100,000 square meters. And it's claimed that Russia is prepared to replace all the components of the Shahid with its own parts, except for the combat unit, which will probably continue to be supplied from Iran. So, I don't know. To me, this looks scary, and everyone on the Z Telegram channels are up in arms about it, but, um, yeah, seeing how everything gets totally stolen, I would like to see how this thing develops. But, um, yeah, I needed to mention this, because, after all, this is the news show. But I turned turned my eyes to reading some older articles and you know, things from half a year ago or something, and, and to find some answers there. Because we, we have time currently to think about how this war is going, and what does it mean, how did it start, and what, what the mentality of the sides is. And currently, again, there are rumors about, you know, some deal-making and all this stuff, and how this works, and I've always, I've always stated that the deal, any deal in this case, is totally impossible, in my opinion. And I'll explain why right now. See, 
I've been arguing about this with, with Mr. Heaton, and there are people who are like, well, pro-deal, but they don't understand certain important facts about, about Russia. That's the thing. And I found um, an interview and more materials that she wrote in total everything from a historian and sociologist, Dina Kapeyeva. And she spoke to Verstka and some other journals and her materials are good and she kind of has gathered stuff together that is useful that we all know here. I'll be using that and, well, other sources for this to explain all this stuff for you. Because you see, one thing to remember that um, in late November, at a meeting with soldiers' mothers, so-called, if you remember that fake meeting, Putin told a woman whose son had perfectly died in Ukraine that uh, we all leave this world sooner or later. And that her son didn't live, live his life in vain because he accomplished his mission rather than dying from vodka or something. And these ideas are just out there all the time and everything. And here, well, this joy of death, this death cult thing, that's an integral part of this propaganda thing. This is a logical extension. You see, in 1994, a Russian Orthodox bishop named Ion Shinkov published a book called The Autocracy of the Spirit. In it, he argued that the terror is the best way to govern the Russian people, using Ivan the Terrible as an example. The famously brutal 16th century Tsar, in Shinov's telling, was a naturally soft and gentle ruler who suffered greatly when he had to dole out punishment. The sect, by the way, this guy Shinkov found and advocates for the canonization of all of Russia's leaders. Shinkov's ideas were embraced by other extreme figures like, you might remember this guy, Mr. Dugin, who has written, among other things, that the task of Russian people is to bring about a purifying apocalypse. Well, according to Dina Kapayeva, and me, and many other people, by the way, these concepts and others like them have helped fill a void in Russia over the last few decades. The ideological one left in the wake of the Cold War and the, the, the chaotic 1990s. Quote, When Putin came to power, he needed some kind of ideology to rely on, Kapayeva told the outlet Verstka. Westernism, with its human rights and valuing of everyday life, just wouldn't work. The ideas of alteration of power and political competition, so important for Western ideologies, run counter to the president's aims. Communism wouldn't work either, since the communists were his main political domestic opponents. Then radical nationalists and orthodox extremists came to his aid. For Putin, they were the understandable and organic with their anti-Western and autocratic ideas. In Kapayev's view, it doesn't matter whether Putin has actually read the works of Russia's far-right thinkers or whether he's receiving them second-hand, the effect is kind of clear. Putin and the Kremlin's ideologues are systematically using these ideas and passing them off as their own. And the culmination of years of Russia's top leaders giving these radical nationalists their attention, according to Kopayeva, has been an official rhetoric that holds dying for the country as an unmitigated good. Instead of a meaningless, hopeless, impoverished life, Russians are being offered the chance to die for the motherland. By that measure, what matters most is that the country's enemies are destroyed. And the fact that this requires people to die in the process, you know, isn't so important. While this messaging has come in handy for Putin since he launched his invasion of Ukraine, Kapayeva said his promotion of the idea that Russians should embrace martyrdom is nothing new. By the way, uh, as a side note, I made an episode about what fascism is and this death cult, martyrdom cult is. One of the clearest uh, signs, yeah, it's a thing that exists there in, in standard fascism, at least how Umberto Eco has written about it. 
The idea of death, of death cult and purifying apocalypse has long been deeply integrated in the Putinist discourse. You will even find it in, in his speeches from the 2010s. Quote, We Russians will go to heaven while they'll just croak, and what good is a world without Russia? She said. According to Kopaeva, Russia's politics of historical memory have developed along two main lines under Putin. Re-Stalinization and Neo-Medievalism. You can see this clearly in the way the memories of Ivan the Terrible and Stalin are perpetuated. Numerous films that show these, show these figures in a positive light have been made with state money. But at the same time, the rehabilitation of these former Russian rulers isn't a sign that Putin wants to return to a past era. On the contrary, quote, The glorification of medieval Russia and Stalinism are just tools for promoting anti-democratic values common to both Putin and those dark periods of Russian history, end quote. And these tools have worked. And uh, if you here, you have to notice that there is a scale of the anti-war protests in Russia. Well, you might ask, what anti-war protests? And that's exactly correct. Throughout the entire country, of only a few thousand people have went out to protest, and they were easy to suppress. Now, protests in the United States after the start of war in Iraq, yeah, those were several times larger. I even remember them. And that's, by the way, not a surprise. In totalitarian societies, which I believe Russia has been since 2014, People value their own lives much less than in democratic ones. What hope for the future can a person have in a society that denies the value of human individuality? Once a society has reached that point, Kapayeva says, a war like the current one in Ukraine is all but inevitable. There's a book published in 2006 by former Russian State Duma speaker Mikhail Yuryev called The Third Empire, Russia as it ought to be. He calls it an utopian fantasy novel. The book is narrated by a Latin American subject of a new Russian empire who recounts the process by which Moscow took over the globe throughout the first half of the 21st century. It begins with the capture of Crimea, then wars against Georgia and Ukraine, and it ends with the conquest of America and Western Europe. In Yudyov's imagining, Russian civilization brings treasures to the West. For example, potluck-style class-based banquets that are required for everyone in the empire and that, in the end, and that end in drunkenness and brawls. Though usually without malice. According to Kopeyeva, the book's author had close ties to members of Putin's inner circle, and likely even Putin himself personally in the mid-1990s. Quote, The aggressive militarism that's enshrined in this book became the basis of Russia's state ideology at the very start of Putin's rule. Namely, the idea that the country should be feared, and that's the source of its greatness. When the president refers to a new atomic weapon as a gift for the country, is that not the best possible example of how, these little how he little he values the lives of his compatriots? The current war is a consequence of this cult of death, not its underlying cause. Russia isn't the first country to be infected by such a death cult. Kapayev notes, and we must agree. This cult caused the Germans alone no less than 10 million human lives. Though it's not appropriate to compare the current Russian ideology to German National Socialism or Communism. Both of these ideologies were focused on the future, while Russia's neo-medieval ideology looks to the past. I've been, you know, talking about this all the time. They, Even the Soviet Union had some sort of progressive goal and wanted to move forward, do something positive, right? Putin and his good cronies, they're just regurgitating the already existing things. On the other hand, she said, even outside of Russia, a lack of regard for human life has turned into a commodity of the entertainment market. The legacy of the 20th century, the Holocaust, the Gulags, dealt a strong blow to people's faith in man and humanity. 
As a result, in philosophy and a number of social movements and in popular culture, there has been a rejection of the idea that everything should be done for the sake of humanity. I mean, what kind of studies find success in popular culture these days? Apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic ones, and stories about characters who deny the supreme value of human life. We have all sorts of creeps and violence. But while Western society at large still maintains a clear distinction between the value of human life in popular media, on one hand, and in the real world, that is, in government and legal systems, on the other, well, that's just not the case in Russia. See, the uniqueness of the Russian situation is that a mix of orthodox extremism, imperial ideology, and an apocalyptic mood has become part of the official state discourse. Because millions of people in Russia have now been fed a steady diet of this rhetoric for a significant portion of their lives, it would be naive to think that undoing its effects will be easy. In fact, you know, here, Kapayev and I agree, there's only one thing capable of bringing lasting change. Quote, It appears that a military defeat and the terrible radical consequences it will bring to the country is the only thing capable of sobering Russians and causing them to rethink their place in the world. That's likely the only way to heal them from this imperial virus, from this medieval desire to die for the subjugation of other peoples. And then, probably, Russians will be able to think in a new way about what's worth living for and uh, what's worth dying for. And just so you wouldn't think that um, I'm just quoting Russian opposition here and everything's grim, well, here's a political scientist Erika Franz for you, an associate professor of Michigan State University, She's been studying authoritarian regimes for more than 15 years and has written multiple books on the topic. She and her co-authors had compiled a database of nearly 300 authoritarian regimes that have existed around the globe since 1946. Using this data, the researchers have analyzed how and why various autocracies have come to an end and how often leaders have fallen from power. And she got an, got an interview with um, Medusa. And this interview also quite nicely ties in and touches the previous subject. I'll be putting up things here, because what we want to know here is that, you know, autocracies have a lot of things in common, but some things are still weird. First of all, how much can, the, can autocracies of the past tell us about countries in the present? And she says that, in general, there are some basic underlying features of dictatorships that can be a focal point for understanding them. If we have, say, a military junta that's in power, we're going to see a lot of similar outcomes whether that junta is in power in Asia or in Latin America. I tend to look at two key structures. Well, that's her. The incumbent party, including whether it exists or not and how institutionalized it is, and the role of the security forces. If the security apparatus actually in the is in the reins of the government, or is it independent of the leader, or is it fully at the leader's disposal? These two dimensions tend to be pretty important. A key dimension is whether there's some sort of body that can constrain the leader, first of all, and then second of all, whether that body is militarized. These two factors tend to lead to a lot of different outcomes we might care about. Then she answers about why autocrats hold elections and all this stuff, but, uh, you know, I'll skip that part because I really want to get to the, all this thing that made me... Also use this source as well. I'll talk about elections and why autocrats hold them in some other episode. I can't really, you know, reveal all of that. It'll be too much thematically wise. She was asked, what do you think usually causes autocratic leaders to lose their hold on power? Based on her work, it seems important to note that the end of leader's reign doesn't always portend the end of the regime. 
And, well, she says, quote, Yes, we know that leaders' survival and the regime's survival are not necessarily one and the same. In the post-World War II period, about half of the time that leaders fall from power, they just have a replacement, and the regime goes on. The other half of the time, when the leader falls from power, the regime goes down with it. But we definitely can't assume that leadership turnover is necessarily going to lead to the downfall of the regime. There are also meaningful differences against regimes in terms of their type. The type can help inform how they fall from power. In general, military regimes, which were very common during Cold War, are less common now. They tended to be the shortest of all dictatorships, but they're most likely to end in the negotiation where they stepped out of power. And that negotiation creates an environment that's very good for democracy. So among all these dictatorships, military dictatorships are the most likely to democratize, and there's a lot of examples of that from Latin America, for example. And uh, here we come into the important part of what's happening here, because it's going to be interesting. Why do the leaders of personalist autocracies cling to power so tightly? Is it because of the risks they might face if they lose it? And the answer here is, well, obviously yes. Because they have usually created a lot of enemies while governing and purging rivals, getting rid of everybody whom they dislike, they become very fearful that they could be either exiled or imprisoned or killed when they leave power. And, you know, indeed, the data shows that they are more likely to be exiled, killed or imprisoned. So that fear of what we call bad fate can lead them, really, to dig in their heels and try to do whatever to stay in power. We are going to be more likely to see violence when, they, when these leaders and their regimes leave power. And that sort of violence, whether it's through a revolt, a foreign invasion, or a civil war, for example, yeah, that's not a good breeding ground for democracy. It's because violence leaves society fragmented. We do know that when there are these high levels of violence, whether due to violent protest movements or some other reason, it's way less likely to see democracy come out on the other end. If civil war is the mode of transition, we're even still less likely to see democracy. Usually if there isn't violence, then it's a lot easier to facilitate this transition. With Russia, this author here says that she needs to talk about how some of these long-standing personal dictators can be a little bit different. Early years of personalist rule can be kind of uncertain and stable, Sometimes they might be overthrown in a coup early on, for example, because they haven't quite settled in and really effectively purged their rivals and coup proved all these things. But lately, we've been looking at what happens once these personalist leaders have been in office for 20 years like Putin has. And in that situation, what we find is it actually gets very different. We're more likely to see death in office as the main way that these leaders leave power. And death in office happens to be pretty inconsequential for the regime in that when leaders die in office, the regime usually survives. It's most likely going to be somewhat destabilized in a personalist dictatorship. But even there, like 80% of the time, the regime actually survives. And that is because the elites, well, they have a very strong incentive not to change anything. Obviously. These the people in power are very aware of how they're tied to the regime, and they truly, truly do not want to, do not want to basically change anything so that's all the thing we'll talk about a war among experts and political commentators in Russia there's a fairly widespread idea that Putin will wage this war for as long as he's alive since presumably he sees it as his only means of maintaining power what do you think about that this question here because again I've skipped quite a lot of the interview but this question here and the response to it this is the reason why I also think 
negotiations are quite difficult, to be honest. Quote, I agree. I don't think that that was the goal initially. I think there's quite a bit of evidence that he was surprised about how difficult it was. He thought he was going to go in, accomplish his goals, and then be done with it. Instead, the Ukrainian response took him by surprise, in many ways because he had such poor information in this personalist environment he lives in. So his decision to wage war, and the fact that the war didn't go very well, is all consistent with what research says about dictators, unfortunately. I do not think that initially the goal was to accomplish these short-term goals and then get out of there. But now things have dragged on. He has so tied his legacy with this war and its outcome that he almost has to go on in order to have any political future. Or he needs a decisive victory, which doesn't seem like it's on the horizon either. So given the fact that he can't easily win, his best bet is just to continue. He doesn't profit from negotiation, given that he's able to target specific groups of Russians to go and fight the war, and that he's able to make sure that the people whom he cares about are okay, while putting the costs on other people whose support he's less reliant on. It's a very grim picture. That's a comment by interviewer, and yeah, it's a bit crazy. It is horrible. You can talk about these things casually, but then when you think about the reality of what's happening, the fact that repression has gone up so much since the war started, how it's no longer a safe place for journalism at all, and especially with the latest beatings up as well. And this article isn't new. This was, I think, a year ago when uh, published there. I dug through the archives. And then she says, and for that reason, there aren't that many ways for something to get shaken up here. Everything is pretty hardened. The war could continue for a very long time. It's not that defeat is something that will guarantee X, Y, or Z, but at least it would create some opportunity for disruption of this really repressive authoritarian system that is now in place in Russia. And the other reality is that if Putin continues this war and dies in office, it's very likely, according to the research, that the successor would continue this war, and that we wouldn't see any large policy shifts. That's the thing. That's the message. So, if we want to get rid of death cult, and if we actually want to stop the war, wanting the wars of aggression in the future, yeah, well, we can't negotiate. Igor Girkin, I think, is mistaken here. He always says that, you know, Putin will want to negotiate or something, but he can't. And I think he knows he can't. The sad part is we can't either. I, I don't know, I tend to agree to these things, and I'm not sure this is going to end in negotiations. I have presented you with why, from why it started, and how it must go on with historians and political scientists talking as well. I don't know. It seems that we will sadly have to go and live through with this until the bitter end, because don't think that any potential negotiations is even possible in this case. But yeah, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. We are going to have a movie night, well, night for me, probably not for you, with Patreons. Check patreon.org slash the eastern border to become our patron, and check my post, dear patrons, which I just linked there. You'll find all the instructions there on how we're going to have a movie night where we'll, we'll be watching Death of Stalin, and I'll be giving comments, we'll be watching it live. That's for patrons and, and, and donators also. So yeah. Uh, that's going to happen on 14th of July at 23.00 or 11 p.m. Latvia time. Please stay in touch if you care about such things. Also, uh, moving on with the Ukraine thing, I'm waiting for paperwork from Ukrainian side. Got to get into everything. Uh, please remember that we're doing the GoFundMe. 
or you can just donate via the PayPal on the Eastern Border.lv or just continue supporting the show on Patreon. We're existing because of you. And now it's a bit stressful when I have my health issues as well. I have a lot of things to catch up. An article of mine is going to be published soon on Foreign Policy magazine as I write a profile for our president, our new one that's about to be inaugurated, Mr. Rinkevich, that was on my show a month ago or something. So a lot of things to do, not enough time, and uh, I probably should start you know, going to sleep at normal, proper times at this point. The Sudanya Tavarishi and uh, happiness is mandatory. Oh, wait, and one final thing. I will be in Tallinn, Estonia on the 15th and 16th of July after that because our comp- composer for the theme song has his birthday. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to the birthday, but after that on, like, evening of 16th or morning on 17th because I'll be back, going back on 17th, we can maybe meet up in something. So, yeah, that's about it. Again, happiness is mandatory.